For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, visit NACO and a beautification project that lets kids impact the way that the world sees the U.S.-Mexico border. What are our desert-dwelling neighbors really like? Author Alejandro Canelos talks about the plant and animal secrets revealed in his short story collection, The Neotenic Queen, Tales of Sex and Survival in the Sonoran Desert. And hear the survival story of Chris Tans from AZPM's Living History Project, Children of the Holocaust. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The wall at the U.S.-Mexico border has been a source of controversy for the political message it sends, the cost, and the impact on the environment. But for a group of children in a small town, the border wall can also now be a canvas. From the Fronteras desk, Kendall Blust reports from Naco, Sonora. Three young painters help load a pickup with paint cans, ladders, and folding tables outside of Studio Mariposa, a youth art center in Naco, Sonora, that opened in 2017. We do anything that's fun, colorful, and that kids enjoy doing. (laughs) That's studio director Gretchen Baer. Every Tuesday afternoon, some 80 children in this small town gather for art classes in the vibrantly painted art center. And on Saturdays, they paint the border wall. All right. We drive around the corner to drop off the supplies in front of a few rusty brown steel beams. We have just that little bit left on the far end that we haven't done. It's a really important area, I think, because it's the closest to the port of entry we've ever painted. The rest of the wall, as far as the eye can see, has been covered with bright paint, glitter, and mosaics. I think it's empowering. It's empowering for anybody, but I think it's especially empowering for kids that live here on this side to take something that's ugly and redefine it as something that could be beautiful. Walking along the half mile of painted wall that extends to the eastern edge of town, she points out paintings of giant fruit, cheerful minions, and an illusion that can be created using the bollards. If you see here, it's a green apple and green eyes, right? And then you walk and suddenly a red apple and blue eyes. Bear lives in nearby Bisbee, but has been driving across the border to do art projects in Naco since 2010. Back then, her project was called Border Bedazzlers. At first, it was a political statement, pushing back on negative stereotypes about the border region. It really wasn't intended as a kid's project, but it immediately became one. Because when kids see something fun, paint being splashed onto a big wall like this, they wanted to join in. They painted the wall for six years. Then in 2016, they learned that it would be torn down and replaced with this bollard-style wall, with 18-foot-tall steel beams spaced about four inches apart. Bear didn't want to paint it. Instead, she turned her efforts to Studio Mariposa. But during the pandemic, she says the kids needed more fun outdoor projects. So last year, they came back to the wall. Today, about a dozen kids are here, some using flat bristle brushes to paint fine details on their designs, others painting wide strips of purple, blue, and yellow with long-handled rollers. 
They tease each other and splatter paint on their faces and clothes. A mí me relaja pintar. Ten-year-old Alexia Miranda says painting helps her relax, and painting the border wall is especially fun. Los turistas de Estados Unidos vienen y dicen, wow, qué bonito está el muro. She likes to see the surprise on people's faces when they visit from the U.S. De este lado está colorido, está muy bonito, y del otro lado está mm, muy café oxidado. In Naco Sonora, she says, the wall looks colorful and beautiful. In the U.S., where painting isn't allowed, it's brown and rusted. We are altering the bodyscape. We're making it something different. Elizabeth Ballet is a professor at the University of Quebec in Montreal studying border barriers around the world. She's visiting NACO today to help paint the wall, one of many projects at the U.S.-Mexico border and around the world that use art as a form of activism, she says. Border art is definitely an act of resistance. For Deborah Sierra, it's a show of unity. Somos países hermanos. Y NACO, Arizona con NACO, Arizona, somos vecinos. <laughs> We're sister countries, she says, gesturing toward a huge painting of North America with giant wings. And NACO Sonora and NACO Arizona are neighbors. She spent most of her life in a house just south of the border, facing the wall. Now her kids and grandkids live there. She likes this project because it makes their view a little nicer. A los niños. And because it's something positive for local kids to do. As the day winds down, a few kids wash up paintbrushes while others grab spray bottles and start a water fight. <laughs> it's been a fun afternoon. But Bear says there's also a lesson here. For us, we're not going to knock down this wall as much as I'd love to. <laughs> I don't personally have that power. She says it's the same with life. So many things are not something that we can control every bit about. So what's the best way you can take it and turn it into something positive? For her, at least, the answer is art. I'm Kendall Blust, reporting from NACO. You can see some photos of the colorful paintings that are now adorning the border wall on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Neoteny is a concept from biology about the retention of juvenile characteristics as an organism develops. Its application throughout the animal kingdom is diverse and interesting, and it served as a major springboard for author Alejandro Canelos. His new collection of 25 short stories is called The Neotenic Queen, Tales of Sex and Survival in the Sonoran Desert. I would compare it to an adult version of books like Watership Down or the early 20th century bedtime stories of Fortin Burgess. It reveals that the minds of the animals and even the plants that surround us are much like our own, with anxieties, passions, and needs that drive their behavior. These imaginative tales are grounded by the illustrations of wildlife artist Rachel Ivani. I talked with Alejandro Canelos about this fascinating book. I would find or think about an animal or a plant that I wanted to write about that just I found interesting and so I would start doing the research. I don't know why I thought I should do termites but you know termites are a big big part of our ecosystem and uh, you know if you talk to people here in town they're also a big pain for a lot of people. I just started reading about subterranean termites and um, the social organization of termites was incredible. I had learned some about social behavior in ants and bees um, 
when I was studying biology. Even though termites are actually more closely related to cockroaches than they are bees, other social insects, their life cycle I just thought was incredible. So there's a king and a queen, and they meet, and they start having offspring. And and when they meet, they may still have wings, meaning they have great mobility and a larger right. uh, region. But what happens once a male and a female decide to Right. Connect? So I can tell you, I would. there are certain times of year you go outside and you see all these flying insects in a big swarm. Um, turns out those are termites. And those are winged termites that are leaving the nest in order to go out and start their own colony. Okay. And they're flying around looking for a mate. Male and female come together, choose a mate, they land, they drop their wings, and they find somewhere to go down underground and start a family. And that becomes the king and the queen. And for the first year or two, there aren't that many eggs that are laid, but as the process goes along, it gets into the millions and millions of eggs. What I found most fascinating about these termites was how they're literally millions of these termites in in a nest and they all have a job to do and the way that um, they know what their job is how I could relate to it as a human being is through mind control from their parents (laughs) so the king and the queen through pheromones and through a feeding schedule is is they decide what each termites job is and um, like all these stories, I would find things that I could personally relate to. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, there are parents and they're telling all of their children, this is what you need to do in order to make our family successful. I can relate to that as a child of parents and I can relate to that as a parent of children. Um, And the fact that these little things that are insects and supposedly have tiny brains in a lot of ways act just the same way we do, you know, across the spectrum for this book, I kept finding that over and over. And what you just hit upon there is the idea that in all of these stories, no matter what form these characters take, whether they're mammals or birds or reptiles or insects, you see people you know there. Mm-hmm. You've met Lorna before. You know, you've met a hard-boiled private detective-style roadrunner before. You may not know it, but you have. Mm-hmm. These plants and animals... They have wants. They're wants that I can relate to and that I think all of us as human beings. So when you say they're people that we've met before, Mm -hmm. it's because we all ultimately, when you boil it down, we all want the same things. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to say we want um, comfort, Mm -hmm. we want security, Mm -hmm. and we want to leave something behind, whether in the form of offspring or art or scientific discovery. We want to make a mark. We have a desire to have our life have meaning. If you look at the behavior of these animals, um, they seem to all have that too. Well, one of the most shocking developments for me in reading your book was finding out that saguaro cacti, who are so highly revered, can kind of be jerks. The idea that the saguaro culture is so megalithic that the predominant leaders can tell the other saguaros to go back into their hole for decades, centuries. I never imagined saguaros behaving like that. So can you please explain a little bit, Alejandro, 
about how you decided on the characterizations that you used in the chapter that is about vegetable life, not animal. Okay. I wanted to write a story about saguaros. And so the first thing I thought was, okay, how do they communicate? My wife, who is now a professor at the law school here, here at the U of A, um, her previous job was for 10 years, she represented clients on death row at Florence Prison. You know, I would ask her, what's it like over there? And she said, well, everybody's in their own cell. And the way that they communicate with each other is through yelling. And you have people that may never see each other, except when somebody's walking by their cell. Yet they yell and they can hear each other. They have set up an entire social hierarchy and in fact, a whole, I guess you would call it an economic system based on hearing one another. And in that kind of a situation, now this is just me speculating, okay? The person who is most convincing or is the best speaker or can convince more people to be, say, on their side is going to be the person who's in charge, right? The loudest voice. Yeah. And so I started to think of these saguaros. Well, if they're communicating and they can't move, they can't impose their will upon each other physically. And if you can't do that, you do it through economic means. If neither of those options is available to you, you still have the tool of shame. The saguaros that can't move are communicating with each other and there is a boss. And how does he retain control? How does he get people to follow him? Well, people fear him. His name is Handy Andy in this story. There's something different about the leader, Handy Andy, though. What is it? He's armless, and if you've ever gone out and you see there's a kind of saguaro you will see occasionally that normally doesn't have arms, it's some kind of an, a fund, fungal infection that occurs fairly early in their life and stunts their growth, mm -hmm. and they look like fans so they're also mm -hmm. called fan top cactuses um, and they're very rare um, what i saw was one in fifty thousand saguaros are like this so one average saguaro one day decides to speak his mind and say his truth and he is shunned it's really dark man <laughs> it, you know it's it's solitary confinement and so if you are in a situation where and that's what they do is my understanding is if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time, nobody will speak to you. And that becomes like a hell. And, and, and a longer hell than most humans can experience. This happens to your central saguaro character over decades. Mm -hmm. The results are heartbreaking. Across the spectrum, you are using creatures and references that anyone who's lived in this state for any period of time will catch. Even if I choose to describe the Neotenic Queen as somewhat a work of science fiction, it's not alien science fiction. It's right here in our backyards. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the book, there's a map that shows where each story takes place because, you know, I wanted to write about this area. I'm a Tucson kid, and I grew up running around here. I grew up at the going to the Desert Museum, and I just love the, the ecosystem and all the animals and plants here. So... Um, 
it wasn't until I was maybe seven or eight stories in that I started to formulate this idea of, hey, I could write a whole book about these and they could all be taking place in Tucson and they could inter interrelate in however I would like them to. Um, and it just became a passion project for me and I just loved the whole process. You can listen to a reading from The Neotenic Queen, Tales of Sex and Survival in the Sonoran Desert, as performed by Alejandro Canelos. It's on our webpage at azpm.org, along with illustrations by Rachel Ivani. The book is published by Neotenic Press. From 1941 to 1945, Germany's Nazi regime murdered two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. Of the six million Jews who were victims of this genocide known as the Holocaust, an estimated 1.5 million were children. Against all odds, some children managed to survive. Children of the Holocaust is AZPM's Living History Project. Producer Laura Markowitz interviewed 19 child survivors of the Holocaust who now live in southern Arizona. This is an excerpt from the story of Chris Tans. Be aware that this story contains descriptions of the attempted genocide of the Jewish people, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. In 1943, a couple named Regina and Henrik Tanz learned that Regina was pregnant, but it was the middle of World War II, and they were Polish Jews hiding from the Nazis by passing as Gentiles. To have a Jewish baby in the middle of the Holocaust was taking a huge risk but they decided to do it anyway. They had a daughter. Her name is Chris Tans, and this is her story. Voyenko, Voyenko, Tsujestizapani, Jezatobo idon, Jezatobo idon, Huopsimalovani. It's a song that's addressed to war. In Polish, war is Wojna. And here it's being addressed to war in the diminutive and feminine, like nice little war. What kind of woman are you that all these young men go chasing after you? Well, my parents were both born in Krakow. So my father became a lawyer in Poland. And then on September 1st, 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland and my father went to join his army regiment. When he got there, he discovered that the regiment had been disbanded, and he concluded that the only thing to do was to go back home to Krakow and ask my mother to marry him. <laughs> so he went back home, and they got married on September 4th, 1939, the fourth day of the war. Three days later, the Nazis marched into their city. There was an edict that they had to move into a ghetto. And at first, the ghetto provided relative security, only because of the huge danger outside the ghetto. If they were caught outside the ghetto without you know, some kind of work papers, they could just be shot in the street. My mother didn't talk to me as I was growing up very much about the horrible things that happened. She, I think she was sparing me. But she did have one memory from when they were in the ghetto of seeing an older woman shot and her brain and eyes splattering against a wall. 
it seems like that experience made them decide they had to leave the ghetto. My father forged fake ID documents, but the grandparents, because they were older, felt it was too risky to, to try to go somewhere else, and they stayed. In 1942, the SS came into the ghetto, rounded up the remaining Jews, and crammed them into cattle cars bound for concentration camps. Chris's grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, they were all taken away. None of those relatives survived, except for one uncle who was 18 years old at the time. But Henrik and Regina had already snuck out of the ghetto and gone into hiding under their new identities. One thing that helped was that my father was blonde and had blue eyes. They spoke both Polish and Yiddish, but they spoke Polish without a Yiddish accent which made it conceivable for them to pass. And they also exercised enormous caution. They never sat together on a train during the war, so that if one of them ran into a problem, the other one could in some way intervene. There was danger from many directions in Poland, and I'm not just from the Nazis, but from people in the public. And there was an occasion when on the street once they were walking but not together and my father saw my mother being surrounded by a group of men. He went over and he offered a bribe to get her out of there. And they took the money. My mother and my father got away. One time in Warsaw, when my father was walking on the street, a man said to him, I know you, you're a Jew. And my father punched the guy. People gathered around and my father said, he said I was a Jew. And then he walked away. In July 1944, six police officers came to their door. Regina was already seven months pregnant. Henrik had to bluff his way out of being arrested. After that incident, they knew they had to disappear immediately. And they told their landlady that they were just going off on vacation. And they crossed the Vistula River in Polish, Wisła, to a town, little town on the other side called Otwotsk. A few days later, on August 1st, 1944, the Polish resistance attempted to liberate Warsaw from Nazi occupation. The Soviet army was advancing on the city from the east, but before they crossed the river, the troops were ordered to stop and let the Poles and Germans fight it out first. And my parents, they could see smoke rising and they could see the, the destruction. And so amazingly, they had been saved because of this invasion by six Polish police officers that had scared them out of Warsaw. A few weeks later, Regina went into labor. So I was born in this little military hospital in the countryside. And the doctor who delivered me asked them if they knew what day it was. And they, they said no. He told them it was Yom Kippur. Clearly, that doctor realized they were Jewish. And it turned out that he was a Russian Jew. The war ended in Poland in January of 1945. Her family moved to France in 1948, 
and when Chris was seven, they immigrated to the United States. She says starting over and learning English was a struggle, especially for her parents. I think in some ways they were grieving, but I also came to marvel that they managed, despite the incredible hardships they had gone through, they managed, for one thing, to give my brother and me a happy childhood. So they were not pouring their grief into us. I have a specific memory of my father when I was very young, and I don't know if I was still in Poland or in France, directing my attention to look at the shadow of a tree on a wall. And it was a very beautiful, sharp shadow. The tree didn't have leaves, so it was just its articulated branches. And my father did that a lot with me, directing my attention to the beauty of nature. And that has stayed with me so much. And I think it was a way for him to get past what they had suffered. Chris ended up earning a PhD in psycholinguistics, and she taught psychology at the University of Arizona. When she left academia in the 1990s, she stayed in Tucson and became a public artist. I felt that I was growing deep roots in the place where I lived. One of her pieces is called Joining Hands. It's on the Julian Wash segment of The Loop. And it's an arch over the bike path. And the top of the arch is cut in steel, and it's figures holding hands. And the figures come from a ceramic pot that was made by people of the Hohokam tribe, a thousand years old, and it has survived. And it's a celebration of community. My family's life was so profoundly affected by conflict between different elements of the community in some sense, Jews and non-Jews, this devastating conflict that destroyed so many lives. It gives me great joy to have been able to make a celebration of the opposite of conflict, of cooperation and mutual aid as an image of our community. Chris Tanz is well aware that humans are capable of committing genocide, but she chooses to focus on our ability to create beauty for one another. She hopes her art transmits the sense of wonder she feels at the incredible gift we've been given to live in this place with one another. For Arizona Spotlight, This is Laura Markowitz. The full video interview with Chris Tans will be available July 5th on the Children of the Holocaust homepage at azpm.org. It's part of the ongoing web series with new stories appearing every Wednesday through July 19th. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.